You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to the Lab Notes podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens, and today we are welcoming a prestigious guest to the show. Professor Benjamin Eggleton is a leading researcher in the field of optics and photonics. He honed his craft at the fabled Bell Laboratories before returning to Sydney to become the founding director of QDOS, an ARC center of excellence focused on optical communication and data systems. Over the course of his career, Ben has consistently pushed his research beyond fundamental science, prototyping and improving technology platforms from optic fiber relays and photonic microchips to a new generation of systems for imaging, sensing, and signals processing. The clear drive towards application is one of the factors that has seen Professor Eggleton and his colleagues recognized with some of the most competitive grants and awards in Australian science, including multiple laureate fellowships, a Eureka Prize, and with Ben himself being elected as a Fellow of the Australian Academy of Science in 2016. Recently, Professor Eggleton was promoted to the position of Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Research at the University of Sydney, where he is now responsible for shaping research policy and processes at this world-leading academic institution. Professor Ben Eggleton, welcome to the Lab Notes podcast. Good morning. So we let every guest start with an elevator pitch. Ben, how do you describe yourself and what you do? Well, I'm a professor at the University of Sydney. I've been here for 20 years, um, which is extraordinary. And I'm currently pro vice chancellor of research, which means I run the um, research operations division. But I'm still a very active researcher and run a research group and have a number of leadership roles engaging different stakeholders. And these days, most of my research focuses on um, smart sensors, and we can tease that out. And I've got some pretty exciting projects with uh, the state government and with the Australian Defence Force, of which I can talk a little bit about. Yeah, we'll get on to Jericho and a few of your other tidbits over the course of the interview. I'd like to start with, I guess, your beginnings. Uh, you've been interested in science for a long time, but started with astronomy before you moved into optics. Can you give us a quick overview of your kind of master's and PhD and how you became interested in this world? Yeah, so I started off as an undergraduate student at the University of Sydney, uh, focusing on physics and pure maths. And as often is the case, um, my initial interest was in astronomy, spent you know, my younger years in cafes in Glebe and Bad Manners and talking about physics, philosophy and astronomy, spent my summers up in Narrabri as an intern in the astronomy department, working on a large telescope that was being commissioned at the time, spent many um, long nights out there staring at the stars. And as I have said many times, I think it's fair to say I saw the light when I was about 21 and realised that as much as I was really passionate about stargazing, I was actually more interested in the photonics aspects of the stargazing. I was more interested in the instrument. And my early research was on the topic of using fibre optics, introducing fibre optics into the astronomy uh, world. And um, that's really what I fell in love with. And so I decided not to do a PhD in astronomy, but I uh, decided to do a PhD in photonics. And at the time, Australia was rolling out its first fibre optic connection between the major cities. So it was a very exciting time for physicists to contribute to some of the really significant technical challenges associated with that fibre optic network. 
So that really was the beginning of my journey in uh, what is a really exciting field of photonics and nonlinear optics. Yeah, fantastic, Ben. I wish we could dive more into your PhD journey, but in the interest of time, I'm going to have to move yep. on because yep. the rest of it's so interesting too. I'd, I'd love to talk about your postdoc because it's at an incredibly storied institution. You went to, to Bell Labs in New Jersey in the US, and I, I just want to hear, I guess, your take on what this institution was like. But Bell Labs was just an amazing place, incredibly exciting opportunity for a young Australian I spent six months at Bell Labs as a PhD student, and I was just this young kid. You know, I went over there with some fibre optic devices that I had made in my lab in Sydney to do some experiments with this very distinguished researcher and came back with no plans and basically got an email from this guy, Dick Slusher, who said, I'd love to hire you um, at Bell Labs. And so I had this opportunity to go back as a postdoc. And Bell Labs was for 50 years the premier research lab in the world in physical sciences. So it is where the transistor was invented, semiconductors, uh, photovoltaics, Shannon's information theory. Most of the transformational breakthroughs that underpin information technology came from Bell Labs. And it was just an inspiring place. Every second office was someone who was a legend in the field and it was really empowering. And I was successful there. I, I managed to um, get some runs on the board and got promoted. And I was initially a postdoc member of technical staff. And very early on in my career, I found myself leading a team. And um, I think what my PhD set me up for really successfully was I was very good and still am really strong at the interface between science and technology. So on the one hand, I was based in the physics division. The divisions within Bell Labs always had a, they had a code, BL011141. And the old mantra was the more ones, the closer to God. So BL011111 was theoretical physics. And as you removed ones, you got closer to the business side of things. So I started in 11116, and that was optical physics. And so I then moved into optical fiber research. So that was 11143. And slowly, um, because I was, I had a good understanding of the technology and an appreciation of the business and reasonably good social skills and engagement skills. And I got promoted to technical manager. I invented the technology that um, the company wanted to manufacture. I found a customer. We used to fly across to Nuremberg every couple of months where there was a large division developing optical networking technology. And sure enough, I find myself at the age of about 30 as a research director. And of course, that was 2001. Um, we had 9-11, which was a life-changing experience for everyone, I think. But certainly if you were um, in New Jersey, New York, it was pretty close to where we were living. And then the telecom bubble burst. And so I was um, in a role, a leadership role, as the entire telecommunications industry was tanking, essentially. Uh, our business unit went from $300 million down to about $10 million in six months. It's pretty dramatic. Ouch, yeah, that's a, that's a pretty formative experience in and of itself. Uh, look, before we move on from the labs, you mentioned you know, every second door had a, had a leader in the field, had all of these experts and people who were influencing you as an early researcher. I wonder if there's any particular names or individuals that stuck out as, as somebody who you think has shaped how you approach science and industry engagement now. Yeah, so look, good question. I worked for a guy, Dick Slusher, um, who's now retired. Uh, he was my mentor for many years, Richard Slusher, and um, really outstanding scientist and an outstanding individual. And he, for me, always represented the best of people. Impeccable integrity, 
very spiritual man who um, had the incredibly deep understanding of the physics and um, a real passion for what he did. And uh, it was just a pleasure for me to spend my formative years working for, for Dick and his team. Um, but I work with so many talented people who've gone off in different directions. And when I travel back to the US, as I did last month for a big conference in San Jose, where I picked up COVID for the second time, and that's another story, but that community of um, researchers is very much, it's Bell Labs reunion. I go back and I see all my former Bell Labs colleagues because they're now in universities and all over the country. We come together and, um, you know, it's a very strong network. But Bell Labs, really, it's not what it used to be. It, it still has a brand, but it's part of Nokia. And it's a tiny, tiny thing compared to what it was back in its glory days when I was there. Yeah, I'm, I think there's a lot of scientists with pipe dreams of recreating Bell Labs, but we just need someone to pay for it all. Yeah, look, it was a, somewhat of an aberration of history that um, AT&T was a very much a monopoly. Um, some would say it was almost a government-backed uh, industry, and that allowed for this R&D institution that was set up to provide, you know, national sovereign capability for the US and um, for many years was the innovation pipeline for all of the, the technology that underpins everything we do in terms of information systems. But um, in the 90s, you know, with the deregulation of that sector, Lucent was spun off and, you know, that, that really brought an end to that whole, um, in a sense, the ecosystem has had to reimagine itself. And there's not, nothing replaced it, actually. So it's interesting where... You know, the world is these days, you've got the Apples and the Microsofts, but we don't have a Bell Labs equivalent. No, there doesn't seem to be a modern equivalent, despite all the efforts around ecosystem building and incubators. You've not got a Bell Labs or a Xerox Park in Palo Alto. You don't have even a Menlo Park going back a bit further. But I digress. So let's get this interview back on track. You mentioned there that Bell Labs went through a bit of a consolidation and yourself and kind of a lot of people within the organization must have been considering their future. For you, the opportunity came back to return to Sydney and join QDOS, the ARC Center of Excellence. Can you tell us a bit about that institution and what drew you back home? Yeah, no, look, that's a great story. And um, I mean, just as the telecom bubble was bursting and 9-11 was sort of um, changing the world uh, in Australia, down under, the government was starting to invest in research capacity. And uh, there was a very exciting initiative that came out of the Howard government backing Australia's ability. And it led to the creation of the ARC Federation Fellowships, which were designed to attract uh, world-class talent back to Australia. And at the same time, the launch of Centres of Excellence, um, ARC, Australian Research Council funded large-scale collaborations anchored in universities that were designed and still are designed to create research capacity in areas of real strategic importance. And so um, the University of Sydney uh, reached out to me and encouraged me to apply for one of these fellowships. I must say that I reluctantly agreed that I wasn't convinced that that was the best thing for my career and my family at the time, but it was certainly, looking back, it's been an amazing journey. And as that fellowship was unfolding, the Centre of Excellence came together and um, was a fantastic centre. And basically, the, the crux of that Centre of Excellence was an idea that I put forward at the time to focus on the building of and the creation of a photonic ship. And it was a bit of a paradigm shift. And it was really, at the time, trailblazing sort of construct, this idea that people are familiar with microchips. And we understand the role of microelectronics and the smartphone has these incredible chips that have billions of 
components it gives to the edge compute that is the backbone of all computing. But the notion of photonics, which is the laser and really uh, is associated with the fiber optic network that we talked about earlier, uh, the possibility that we can build a photonic chip, put photonics on a chip, um, was a real paradigm shift. And so that idea I put forward back in 2002, and that was funded initially for eight years by the Australian government as a collaboration of five universities. And in that eight years, we established a large-scale national centre of about seven universities working together to create, to build, to develop, deploy, and apply these photonic chips, these photonic circuits, these integrated circuits that control light waves rather than electrons. And look, it's fair to say that now we are almost 20 years later, that photonic chip concept that was quite a paradigm shift has become kind of a universal technology. It's had a huge impact uh, globally, nationally, significant investment in R&D infrastructure of companies that have been spun off across the centre. And uh, there are now centres of excellence that have sort of been born from that original centre that are now the legacy of that original centre. And so, you know, we could talk for hours about the great things that are happening, but just to give you a few examples, I mean, the Sydney Nanoscience Hub, which is at the University of Sydney main campus, was one of the really successful um, achievements of that centre in the creation of that large-scale research infrastructure that now supports a much more multidisciplinary program. But we're working on photonic chips with a number of partners. Some of uh, the research is sensitive. I can't talk about it. Some of it um, is out in the public domain and... um, no, really, it was an amazing story. And look, it was very bold of the government to invest in these centres of excellence that were sort of, on the one hand, modelled by modelled on the Max Planck Institutes, you know, to create scale and focus, fundamental research, transformational research based on the hypothesis that creating scale and focus in areas where we have competitive advantage could drive innovation in the long term. And I think the proof in the pudding is that it was a really good investment. Yeah, I actually did my own PhD in one of these centres of excellence, and it does bring together some really amazing talent together into one fertile environment for innovation. And you mentioned in your case that your centre did lead to some technological innovations that were spun out as companies or licensing, perhaps. If you don't mind, I'd love a case study on a technology that came out of that centre of excellence that's now in commercial application or, or in use in the real world. In the first instance, the photonic chips were being developed in the context of telecom data centers. So the idea was and still is that photonic integration allows you to um, create in very compact, low energy footprint platforms, very high data throughput uh, processing. And that uh, certainly enables data centers and networks to be more um, energy efficient, um, more agile, reconfigurable. And that has been very successful. And there are a number of companies that have spun off around Australian universities, some of those companies associated with Kudos and certainly globally in the US, we've seen um, significant uh, commercialization, um, Silicon Valley and uh, translation. So that's the sort of initial driver. But then I think it's fair to say 10, 15 years ago, there was a realization that the telecom, which is more the digital application, was just one. I mean, the big shift has been then into analog photonics. So the analog photonics is the idea of using the photonics to manipulate microwave signals. And it turns out that's important for electronic warfare, radar, 5G, 6G applications. So a lot of that research is going to be under the umbrella of defence. In the US, we've got some significant um, investment from under the Obama government through what's called AIM Photonics, and that has been a very strong research innovation ecosystem linking universities, semiconductor foundries, uh, some of the... um, 
defence primes like Lockheed Martin are developing photonic integrated circuits for um, sensing applications, particularly anchored in this microwave photonics. It's also worth highlighting that um, photonics is one of the leading um, approaches for quantum computing, quantum technology. So um, as we were starting to develop uh, advanced photonic circuits for manipulating uh, light waves in the form of digital or, or even analog um, information, we realised that photonic circuits lend themselves very elegantly to manipulating quantized state of light. Uh, we can generate a single photon, we can manipulate single photons, we can generate uh, correlated photons, we can generate entangled photons. And so my group, other groups around the world, uh, pioneered the idea of a quantum photonic chip. Um, and so it's worth noting that probably the most successful approach for quantum computing is a company in uh, Silicon Valley called SciQuantum that's led by an Australian, Jeremy O'Brien. Jeremy is a graduate from the University of New South Wales, um, and they've raised about a billion dollars VC funding. And their approach is based on a silicon photonic chip to generate and manipulate these photons as the basis of quantum computing. And then the fourth pillar is really around sensing. And so we've got these four pillars. We've got the digital, we've got the analog and microwave, we've got the quantum, and then we've got this sensing narrative where the idea that um, you can build a photonic chip um, that is so compact that it might integrate it into the smartphone, it might provide the ability to uh, sense the air we breathe or uh, detect your health. So those are the kind of four directions that um, we've seen photonic chips being sort of deployed in. My own group at the moment is quite consumed by our engagement with the Royal Australian Air Force. And that is uh, somewhat sensitive. I can't really talk about the details, but it's fair to say that it is very much focused on smart sensing applications as the basis of what we call situational awareness. All right, well, let's avoid straying into anything too sensitive in the defense space. But I do want to talk about the smart sensing side because I know you were quite instrumental in establishing a research network for that purpose. Could you tell us how the smart sensing work evolved out of your research? The story behind the sensors is an interesting one to unpack because if I think about the last six, seven years as I was uh, bringing the KUDOS program to an end in about 2015, and KUDOS was very much focused on those first three pillars, the digital, the analog, and the quantum. And I realized that photonics was well-placed to drive the smart sensor revolution. And at the time, I had been working with the Office of the Chief Scientist and Engineer, Mary O'Kane, Professor Mary O'Kane. Professor Mary O'Kane very active. Um, and Mary and I had been talking about the role of smart sensors in the environmental monitoring context. There was some real challenges faced by um, New South Wales government around pollution in the Hunter Valley, associated with the mining corridor. There was a real challenge, or there is a real challenge associated with PFOS and PFAS in the waterways around Williamstown. There were some security issues um, that were being confronted at the airports. And the, the notion of smart sensors were becoming more and more prevalent in all those areas. And um, to cut a long story short, Mary somehow had the foresight to bring Justin Gooding and I together one morning. Um, so he and I had not met before, but Mary basically invited us to meet her in her office on the 47th floor of the MLC Centre one morning that basically kind of put us on the spot and said something like, if you guys could sort of work out a way of collaborating 
I think I've got some funding that I can give you for a year to establish a pilot project on sensors. She didn't really know what she wanted to do, but she sort of sent us away. We literally went downstairs. I bought Justin a hot chocolate. And on the back of an envelope, on the back of a napkin, I sketched out the letters NSSN and started to talk about smart sensors. And Justin came from a kind of chemistry, biological point of view, and I came from a physical. And to cut a long story short, we converged on this narrative of smart sensors and we set up this one-year project funded by Mary to develop sensors for these particular use cases. And um, that was the beginning of a fantastic journey. And now we are seven years later, and that network has been very successful working across all of New South Wales University on the translation of smart sensors into solutions to address a whole bunch of really important civilian applications in medtech and transport and water and the environment and health and others. Yeah, the, the NSSNs are a really interesting model, and I think one that a few other groups have since tried to emulate. Could you tell us a bit about how NSSN functions and, and what its role is in the academic ecosystem in New South Wales? Yeah, look, good question. And so it's fair to say the original construct of NSSN that we talked about with Mary was more of a naive thinking around the idea of two universities just doing research on smart centres and I think Justin and I had this sort of notion that maybe the state government was going to become like the ARC. But, of course, the state government has quite a different role in terms of the innovation ecosystem. It's much more focused on the translation and the growing of the economy and prosperity and, and jobs and um, addressing some of these challenges. So it became clear after the first year that NSSN needed to be more than just a research centre. It actually... Its role was to become and is to become a portal between the end user, government, industry, and the university innovation ecosystem to provide access to all the research that sits in the university sector. So NSSN is an unincorporated joint venture headquartered at the University of Sydney, the University of New South Wales. We have nine university members. Uh, we work across almost all of the verticals of society. And essentially, we are a vehicle um, that connects university researchers with the challenges faced by the New South Wales government and the industry. So the hypothesis is that smart sensors are the solution to many of the challenges. Um, and I think it's fair to say that is absolutely been borne out by the last seven years of our program that we've generated, uh, I think, more than a times 10 return on investment for every dollar of R&D from the state government or from the universities. We've generated more than $10 of commissioned research. We've had some fantastic success stories but essentially, NSSN, it doesn't own the IP. It has a wonderful team of business development managers and theme leaders who have a really good understanding of the university innovation ecosystem, and they understand where the strengths are across the universities in engineering, science, in AI, in data, very good connections into the innovation industry ecosystem, and pulls together these um, different stakeholder groups. We use co-design uh, very successfully. So we uh, often, in fact, yesterday there was an event in um, Gosford that I zoomed into, which was focused on medtech and the aged care sector, looking at and asking the question of the role of smart sensors, empowering people in their homes and in aged care homes. Fantastic group of stakeholders across different universities, uh, New South Wales Health and other stakeholder groups. Yeah, the NSSN has had some fantastic outcomes and certainly has become a model for other academic research networks. 
But I wanted to talk a bit about your involvement and why you chose to do this from a career perspective, Ben, because the NSSN is not the only extracurricular activity you've involved yourself with over the years. You've also been editor-in-chief for academic journals like Optical Communications and APL Photonics. You've been on the Board of Governors for the IEEE Photonics Society and President of the Australian Optical Society. Looking at all these in aggregate, I wonder, do you view them as mostly a philanthropic venture where you're giving back to academia or giving back to the community? Or is it instead something more strategic where you're using these to build your own labs, your networks, and kind of place yourself as an important player in this ecosystem? Yeah, good question. Look, it's a bit of both. I mean, I think you generally, as a research academic, as a leader, you generally do have a sense of giving back. Um, and service, I think there is a sense of generosity of spirit to to give back. But all of those leadership roles absolutely have been strategic, um, building profile, building your networks. I've tried to sort of step back from some of the roles that I've had, but I continue to serve as editor-in-chief of APL Photonics, and that's uh, fantastic for me to engage that community of scholars. It exposes me to some really fascinating strategic uh, issues around publishing and science and research excellence and the integrity of research and the integrity of the editorial process, which, by the way, in my current role as Pro-Vice-Chancellor of Research, I'm also responsible for. So, you know, there's always synergies. Serving on the Board of Governors, being the President of the Australian Optical Society, those leadership roles have just been great experience. And look, I encourage researchers, early career academics, wherever you are in the innovation sector, lean into these opportunities and they all build your character, your networks, your visibility, your profile. Don't get overwhelmed and overloaded. I've also on occasion been stretched too thin. I think it's fair to say about five years ago, I had about five or six parallel gigs at the same time. And I was almost out of the country every three or four weeks. And I remember at some point, I really did crash and burn because I thought, gee, was I've just got too much going on. So I sort of stepped back. But I think all of those experiences helped create who I am today. They've all been very positive and empowering, and they all do align um, well, and they're not necessarily taking you away, but I, I think they're actually building and strengthening what you do. Yeah, great answer. And look, we're running out of time, but I want to pull out one more thread, which you did mention there. You've recently been promoted to Pro Vice Chancellor at the University of Sydney, which sees you overseeing not only your own research portfolio, but a much broader swathe of the University of Sydney's research interests. Can you talk me through a little bit about the University of Sydney's policies and processes around encouraging research, particularly towards these industry applications, industry engagement and commercial opportunities? Yeah, so great question. And look, I'm really having a wonderful time in this role um, as Pro Vice Chancellor of Research. And just to explain what that role is. So I'm under Professor Emma Johnson, the Deputy Vice Chancellor of Research. My division, as I call it, is um, the operations division. I've got about 120 staff across seven departments that are really uh, the transactional operational functions of the university's research innovation ecosystem. So I've got the pre-award, the pipeline, the business development, the contracts. I've got the commercialization office and we're uh, looking forward to a commercialization league joining in the next couple of weeks. I've got integrity and ethics, um, clinical trials governance, uh, foreign interference, uh, defense, the service now ticket system, which is the way researchers interface with the portfolio. I've also got the fellowships and um, ranking. So I've got a pretty big portfolio, a lot happening. University of Sydney, fantastic institution, very big, comprehensive, complicated 
uh, ecosystem. So the University of Sydney has been on a really amazing journey since I've been here. And I reflect back the early days when um, commercialization and entrepreneurship was quite foreign to the sector, wasn't it? Um, really, it was not routine. Uh, we had an office called the Business Liaison Office. I think in the sector, it was called the Business Losing Office. We didn't really have uh, much engagement. It's fair to say that it started to pick up, I think, in a serious way, probably about 2015, 2016, as part of the previous strategic plan. And it turns out that the vice chancellor at the time asked me to co-chair a working group with Andrew Tindall, one of my colleagues here at the University of Sydney. And we put together what was probably the first framing of a university strategy for commercialization, entrepreneurship, innovation, which then represented one page of this much larger strategy for the university. And so that was the beginning of a more sophisticated approach and really starting to celebrate commercialization and translation as an exemplar of impact and part of the purpose of university. Now, it's all so always good to go back and remind yourself, you know, the purpose of a university of like Sydney. And, you know, we're not a for-profit. We're not a business. I mean, we were set up with three really key pillars to create new knowledge, to train and inspire the next generation. And the third pillar is to impact our community. And so really that third pillar speaks to our role in addressing local, national, global challenges. And so, look, the university is in a much stronger position. And, of course, we've got fantastic leadership. Mark Scott, who's come from the public service, and he's put in place a fantastic leadership team. And Mark, I think, has brought a really fresh perspective. He went down to Canberra last year and he spoke to the minister. And he said to the minister, I want the conversation with government to be different. I don't want the conversation to be about how we are subsidised by government. I want the conversation to be about how we are helping Australia be more prosperous, how the sector, particularly the G of 8 and the University of Sydney, is driving innovation and addressing the greatest challenges, creating the common good, whether it's in national security, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in better transport systems, whether it's in training teachers and nurses and doctors, creating that pipeline of skills that we need to drive our economy. So I think we're kind of rethinking our role in the Australian context. And so it's exciting times because we've got, I must acknowledge my colleague, Professor Julie Candy, who's the PVC for enterprise and engagement. So it's really Julie's team that's leading the strategy for the enterprise and really trying to change the culture at the university to be more entrepreneurial, celebrating the successes. And we've had some amazing successes. If you think of July on Thomas Mashmire, think of Tony Weiss and his success story. Think about Mike Biesick and Q Control. Think about Mike Cassio and his pharma uh, company. We're actually much better than we think we are. I think we're much better than people think we are. Our systems are much more agile. We're much more risk, um, happy with risk. We do need to change the culture. So often, you know, it's one thing for the centre to say this. It's one thing for me to say, we're going to celebrate those successes and we're going to put more resources into the commercialization office and more business development managers. But when you go into the schools and faculties, the kind of ground level, you know, sometimes the cultures are still very traditional. And let's face it, early career, mid-career researchers still need to publish or perish, you know. Getting those early promotions is still very challenging. So, look, we're still walking the walk to better the university's place in the sector. But I would make the following point. It's very tempting for people to beat up on the sector, you know, to really look to the university sector as uh, somehow underperforming in their space. And I had a really interesting experience late last year. I was part of a delegation to Israel to visit 
the university and innovation hubs across Israel with about a dozen other university leaders, including a vice chancellor, a couple of deputy vice chancellors, a bunch of PBCs. We were based in Tel Aviv. We had a bus drive that took us around the whole south, north, Israel, all the universities. And we were basically scoping out all their innovation incubators and their knowledge hubs. And you know what? I thought nothing in Israel as sophisticated as what we have in Australia. It's fascinating because hypothesis Israel is this vibrant ecosystem, entrepreneurial, a lot of money. Now, of course, there's a lot more money invested in R&D, but the universities actually are quite passive. They don't have the knowledge hub. They don't have the cicadas. It begs the question, what's going on? And, of course, the answer is sort of leadingly obvious. It's not the universities. It's the overall country. It's the ecosystem. It's the culture. You know, Israel, for historical reasons, they have designed a society that is inherently more entrepreneurial. People are born entrepreneurial in a sense. You know, they go to uni, go to school. They just want to do it. So my point is, you know, we can't look to the university to solve this problem. It's a whole-of-country problem. We need the industry to to also evolve and change. We need the government to lean in. Uh, it really is a whole-of-country conversation. Well, you've uh, definitely thrown the gauntlet down there, Ben. Nothing short of national culture change will do. But I think you're right. Like the, the ecosystem involves everybody. And in order to have something really vibrant, like you know Silicon Valley or Berlin or Israel, you need contributions from all levels. So very astute observation there. Can I end by just flipping this narrative a bit and looking at this problem from the perspective of a young researcher? Do you have any advice for an entrepreneurial young researcher who's interested in building innovation and commercial research into their career path? Yeah, see, the challenge with early career researchers is that the universities, you know, are still going to want to see productivity and outputs to get those early promotions. And the challenge is to, to position yourself to be productive, to be engaged in your professional societies, to publish as you can, but to embed yourself into innovation research ecosystems where you can expose yourself to the bigger picture, to the broader context. Um, and I guess my journey sort of talks to that because I had the fortune to be, throughout my career, to be embedded within ecosystems where I had the opportunity to, to publish and generate outputs, to, to build my track record, to establish my credibility. Because remember, fundamentally, the reason we publish as scholars is because it establishes our credibility. It's those credentials that, uh, at the end of the day, give us the standing to then position in that engagement uh, with industry and others. So it's, it is important to, to have that as an early career researcher, but to be embedded in an ecosystem where you can be exposed to those different verticals and understand the challenges. And so my experience was that I had that opportunity. I was embedded in those places and I understood the kind of challenges. And at the time, it was in telecommunications. It was in data centers. It was in the bandwidth bottleneck. And I got exposed to those um, commercialization pathways, customer focus, and how to sort of formulate business cases. So look, you know, there's lots of good opportunities we do have in Australia, a much more sophisticated ecosystem across all of the universities. There are places where I think you can be exposed to both. But it is, you know, it's a challenge as an early researcher because you've got to get some runs on the board to launch your career and, and set up in a university sector and then um, be exposed to that broader context. Well, thanks, Ben, for that pragmatic advice. I think I'll summarise it as expose yourself to networks and industry, but keep publishing because it's critical. 
And with that, all that's left to say is thank you so much for sharing your own career journey with us here today, Ben. It's been fascinating to have you on as a guest of the Lab Notes podcast. Thank you, Leah. It's good fun. Well, that's all from Lab Notes today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget, you can always check out the episode description for our guest biography and links to all of the organizations mentioned in today's episode. Lab Notes is a production of Eon Labs with music sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Dr. Nat Harris. If you've liked today's episode, don't forget you can subscribe to get new episodes in your feed and check out our back catalogue for any interviews you might have missed. But that's all for now, so until next time, keep inventing.